broadcast out of New York City. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, November 3rd, 2014. I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember that our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today you'll hear Nurse Vicki's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 22 the hour. And we've got another great show for you today that's going to include what's the real meaning of your physical symptoms? And how do oncologists let their patients down? And why you and your family are likely to be malnourished? How electronic medical records are backfiring and affecting your doctor visits? And how artificial sweeteners cause type 2 diabetes and obesity in a way that will surprise you. I know it surprised me. Is there an underlying message when we're sick or we don't feel well? Well, sure, we may have pain due to an injury, a heart attack, a kidney stone, or a cancer. But why did we have an accident? Or why does my back hurt? What are the reasons that we're sick? Are we victims? Does our arthritis originate on a higher level? Yeah, these are fascinating questions. You know, in the medical model today, we look at things as happening to us. We caught a cold. Uh, we fight against cancer. Uh, an accident happened. That was we were just an innocent bystander. And there's another way to look at it. You know, the shamans of the world years ago didn't look at things like that. There was always a story, and it was a story that involved our relationship with ourselves, as well as our families and our and the people in our community, and at a universal level. And so the understanding of how things unfold in our life all had meaning. It wasn't like things happened by accident. You know, Einstein said the universe doesn't throw dice. Everything's organized. And there's a reason why things unfold like they do. So there's a plan that we just might not understand. That we certainly don't seem to understand, at least not most of us. What we have is a model that's based on power and on economics. And so the organization or the type of of practice that is involved with healthcare that's successful will depend on who controls what. It's about the power, the dollars. And the and today medicine is what runs everything. It's because it's a almost a three trillion dollar business every year. It's an enormous income that has a lot to do uh, with the gross national product. And we're not just going to give that up because it's it's something that we value immensely in the culture. So we look at at fixing symptoms more than we look at what do the symptoms mean. We don't go back to the way the shaman uh, behaved years ago and tried to make a story out of what happened that had meaning and purpose. We're just busy trying to fix things. So if we've got a headache or a backache or a, an ulcer or some other problem, the first thing we want is relief. And so we'll take that because first we don't want to suffer. I mean, who wants to suffer? But we miss out on the message. Is there a point to having illness? Is suffering something that helps us move along our spiritual path as human beings? Is there value in the process of living your life and experiencing these things so it can direct you to certain kinds of wisdom that maybe you didn't have? I think all those things, the answer is yes. Well, like it's like there's a divine plan, mm-hmm. and we're in the middle of it, so mm-hmm. it's hard for us to really get it. Well, that's how it is 
the way we look at it. If we look at Mother Nature is our enemy. We're fighting bad weather. We're fighting germs. We're fighting wars. We're fighting cancer. We're fighting everything. Then it becomes something that is adversarial, and it's competitive, and it's it doesn't serve us well. But if we look at the grand picture of what's happening, it's a very organized process where the forces of nature are extremely powerful and and require our trust and faith that they are good and helpful. If we will act and believe in that system, everything starts to have more value in terms of our connectivity, our ability to share, our ability to, to develop community, to love one another and live in peace and joy rather than the reverse. In some ways, it seems kind of harsh to say, to think about somebody being sick because they're supposed to learn something uh-huh. from it, uh-huh. you know, or like you could say, well, maybe it's somebody's karma or maybe the reason uh-huh. somebody can't talk is that it's their turn in life to listen. Lots of things um, like that. I mean, Louise Hay talks about it all the time. I mean, yeah. what does it mean that you have this particular kind of symptom? And you can say, well, it's bad luck and the universe doesn't really care and there's no organization to that. It's just what happened and now I've got to do the best I can. Please give me something that's going to make me better because I don't want to suffer anymore. That's easy to take that mentality. It's a little more difficult to make a construct, a construct out of a system that's built like the old shamanic ways where we're all connected and inseparable with the universe and the oneness of all that exists is impossible not to be connected to because it's that's the way it is and when you start living your life in that way i think you become happier more connected more uh more loving less wanting to be better than the person next to you or to be stronger or wealthier or to have more stuff it's about sharing i think it's, it moves from the duality where we're separate and independent from the rest of the universe Till we're really an inseparable part of it that's really just an expression or a perspective of the universe. You know, at the Health Medicine Center, you do these healing circles, mm-hmm. and they often reveal the meaning of the symptoms in a context of a person's whole life story. Exactly. Um, what have you personally learned from, from doing those about, about that? Well, that there is always a story, and... People, a lot of the time, they'll be abused. I mean, every family is dysfunctional, so there's child abuse in every relation, every family that there is. Probably, I've never seen one where it hasn't been some degree of that. And in some, it's profound, and it's, it's destructive. And people are coming to me 60, 70, 80 years later with all these symptoms you can see stem from the way they were treated uh, when they were a child. Like, give an example. Well, somebody who's abused sexually, who's gained a lot of weight because they don't want to be sexually attractive. Uh, suffers from the problems that come with obesity, doesn't want to get into a relationship because it's not safe. And this perpetuates and builds. And so maybe they never get married or maybe they, who knows what their sexual preference would be. I don't know how, how that works. But these are questions that come up that make you think about that. For me, when I see things, the stories like that happen, I go back and try to help people to understand that Yes, these were abuses, and they were done by people who couldn't do any better. Your parents or your 
authority, your role models, uh, couldn't do any better. So they let you down. But that was what it was. And a lot of that involves forgiving yourself or forgiving them for the things that they did or the things you feel guilty about yourself. When we say forgiving, we need to remember what it what that really means. That means letting go, and it doesn't mean that it was okay. It's not condoning what happened. It's realizing that the only one that suffers if you hold on to <laughs> anger and uh, are going to operate that way, it's going to be you. And so it, the person who abused you may not even know or care. They may be gone. They may have died 20 years ago. But you're still carrying this around, so... Do you really want to continue acting that way? And that answer, of course, is no. Of course, because if you do, it's kind of like then they won. Well, if you want to look at it that way. But if you look at it from a, a non-competitive point of view and there's no blame, it's just that's the way they were. That's all they could do. That was it. Now, you don't have to like what they did, but you also don't have to, don't have to hold that anger inside. You can forgive them for being the dummies that they were. And then you can move on with your own life without being saddled with all that pain. Now, the way symptoms de develop in people, maybe you get an ulcer. Maybe you get headaches. Maybe you get back pain. Maybe you have muscle spasms or uh, ulcerative colitis or God knows what. I think all those things are lessons that are offered by our higher self. Because I think the body is a reflector of our psycho-spiritual essence. So it has to respond in a way that it reflects what's happening at that level, and that allows us to suffer through the physical disabilities that come from illness, that's physical illness, so that we can move beyond where we're stuck. So they offer lessons. So it's an opportunity. You know, the Confucius said that out of disaster comes opportunity. Well, I'll tell you right. one thing is that I've had pain enough times in my life that I'm very appreciative when I don't have it. Oh, yeah. And that's how the, that's how the thinking is of the whole culture. Give me an aspirin. Give me Celebrex. Give me no, codeine. No, that's give not me... what I mean. I mean that I appreciate and I'm grateful every day that I don't have pain. Uh-huh. Or I'm thankful that I can walk. I'm thankful I can use my hands. Yeah, I'm, that I'm good. not paralyzed. That I can talk. That yes. I'm not blind. Right. There are a lot of things that you know that I can hear. There are a lot of things we can be positive and grateful for. Being grateful and, is a good thing. And sometimes it makes me wonder if maybe we don't have pain or things happen to us, so that we can appreciate when we feel good. Now you hit the nail on the head. That's what I think too. And that requ requires a certain amount of trust in a higher power and faith that it's on your side so that you only need to be responsible for yourself and then let go and, quotes, let God. That's the partnership that I see as the smoothest one. And when that works ideally, I think we have fewer lessons that we need to learn that will involve things that are rather drastic. And it doesn't mean at a conscious level we did anything wrong at all. We would never cause cancer or ulcerative colitis or headaches or backaches or the things that we have on purpose at a conscious level, but at a higher self level, which is if you want to look at a little spark of God in us, sure, there's a conversation going on there that we don't even know about in this model that I'm proposing, which is, of course, the old shamanic model that's been around for tens of thousands of years. And this doesn't mean that we don't need to treat our symptoms. No, it doesn't at all. Because I mean, that's a compassionate, symptom. good thing to do. But never, or I wouldn't say never, but generally, 
not in a way to relieve it and then say, here, take this pill, go home, you'll be fine. You know, take this coding for your which back is pain. The va- yeah, which is the value of when somebody has something that's chronic, for example, or something yeah. that's life-threatening. Yes. The value of doing the healing circles because then sure. maybe you can get to the origin mm-hmm. of what's really causes at a very deep level. Exactly. And I think you can make sense out of just about anything if you try. I think you told me once years ago there was a patient that had back pain and you got to the cause of whatever it was. Yeah. And her back pain went away. Yeah. This is a woman who, this is 25 years ago, who was stabbed in the back. Oh, yeah. That's what it was. And she had back pain. It was because someone was trying to rape her. And when this all came came out and she realized what had happened, she didn't need the back pain anymore. So she had forgotten that she'd been stabbed? She repressed it. Wow. We repress a lot of things that we don't want to remember. And that's what spares us as children when we don't have the tools to deal with the challenges we're being confronted with. We repress them, but they don't go away. They sit there and they fester for 20, 30, 50, or 70 or more years in a lot of people. And you've got to go back. Is it good for somebody to maybe be hypnotized so they could try to remember what those things are? Maybe. Or is it better to not remember? I mean, if there, there's got to be well, some reason why you don't remember. Well, the so reason maybe it's the, not good to remember. Well, the reason you don't remember is because you didn't have the tools at the time, so you repressed it. However, as you age, you often do have the tools. You, know, you wouldn't expect a 5-year-old to know what a 25-year-old or a 75-year-old knows. And you don't want to continue to be responding to situations that occurred when you were a kid that re- that required you to, to not face the problems that came up. You need to learn how to solve those things. So, and you've become a problem solver. But those challenges that you had as a kid that you couldn't solve, you had to hide from. That's what repression's all about. Then later in years, later in time, when you, can't, when you do have the tools, it's important to go back and, and rediscover what that original incident was, and then look at how you could deal with it today because you're not going to allow what happened when you were a kid. Say you were molested as a kid. You're not going to allow that at age 20 or 30 or 50 or 80. You're just not going to because you know what to do to stop it. But a lot of people are afraid to go back because they're afraid it'll uncover those same feelings again. So you have to have an expert to to work with. A good psychologist, a good body worker who does somatic experiencing work, which mm-hmm. is a very powerful way to deal with things like that. There are lots of ways to learn about the meaning of, an, of your illness in the context of what it does to you, why it's there, if you can figure it out, and then in, in the context of your whole life story. But people need to realize that it's, that it's not a punishment no, that what? you got the disease. No, it's a result of things happening that weren't fair for most kids. And then they carry that with them and things happen. Like I've heard some people say that cancer is because things are festering in you and you're suppressing them and holding them in. And then then the person that has cancer, then they feel guilty because they held them in. Well, they think it's a conscious decision and it's not. So it's not like we do things consciously by design. Okay, to, to make cancer come on, nobody would do that. Well, my my feeling is that I want to learn whatever all these things are mm-hmm. without having to get sick to learn it. Well, that would be nice if life, was, if life was like that, but in general, it's not. Until we change our values and we become more giving than taking, sharing rather than accumulating, 
and having value in being with people that you want to make happy, we're going to have the kind of adversarial world we live in today where we've lost a lot of that. The community is lost. The giving part is lost. It's about a contest to see how much you're going to accumulate in wealth and in, in, in power and in things. And, of course, that doesn't really make you happy. So it requires an evolution to a higher level of consciousness to be able to be this way. Well, it can make people happy at some level. It can make them happy superficially. Well, yeah. But what but, you're saying is at a deep level yeah. of peace and happiness and fulfillment is giving of yourself. Yeah. Because, why? Because you want to, I know, because of the benefits that you see for someone else, and you make them happy. I know that when I give of myself <laughs> to my friends or family that, <laughs> that need me, that it makes me probably feel happier than anything that I do. Right. Because it makes me feel really good. Mm-hmm. I get Maybe it makes me feel good about myself. Yes, it does. Because I've helped somebody, and it's, yeah. it just makes me feel good. So we all know about that. But we live in fear that we won't have enough. So Mother Teresa kind of summed it up when she was in New York. She basically said that she had never seen so much wealth among so much spiritual depravity. Mm-hmm. And, of course, she had it right on the head. So yeah. we need to evolve. Well, you hear about all these wealthy, rich people that, you know, whose lives are miserable and they commit oh, yeah. suicide oh, yeah. or they get and they get divorces and, look at their and they kids. have all kinds of problems. Yeah, right. Yeah, their kids so. have all kinds of problems, too. So you can't buy happiness and peace and no, fulfillment. You have it to, comes from giving and yeah. sharing and building community. That's why volunteer work is important. I think anything you do to help somebody else is a good thing. And if you're insecure enough that you can't do that and you feel that you need to build on your own uh, physical or emotional or uh, financial wealth, you've got some work to do. A lot of people are always worried about what they're going to get out of it, what they're going to get back. Exactly. Or is that person going to appreciate me? What are exactly. they going to do for me? Are they going to help me? Then All if right. you're going to th- come from that place, you might as well not even do it. Well, that's right. I mean, the whole point is to be able is to want to give more than you want to take. I remember one time somebody did something for me, and I thought it was so nice. Uh-huh. And later on, a few years later, he threw it back at me uh-huh. like he had done this big thing for me, uh-huh. and he was angry about it. So he took it away. And I said, here, all this time, I thought that you had done this wonderful thing mm-hmm. to help me out. Yeah. How disappointing. Yeah. And he shut up pretty fast. Well, but, yeah. I mean, that was really how I felt. I couldn't believe it. Well, I, it shouldn't be so shocking because that's how basically our culture is built, is on what you get out of it. But if the joy of giving is better than the, than the joy of, of taking, and it doesn't mean that you can't graciously receive. You have to be able to accept a gift as well. Yeah, okay? that's Particularly too. from a child. You never yeah. reject the, chick, uh, the, the uh, gift from a child. Anyway, that's what this is about in my viewpoint. So we shouldn't just treat symptoms. We should look at the whole story of why they're there and do the best we can to deal with it like the old shamans. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Vicki's first 2020 tip on special foods that should be organic. When it, and, and when we come back, we'll be talking about how oncologists let their patients down.
Why is it important to eat organic? Well, let's just take one non-organic strawberry. Uh-oh. It contains over 14 pesticide residues. 14? That, yeah. And, and they're fumigated with uh, chemicals, so they're inside the strawberry. They're not just on the outside of the strawberry. And then you might ask, well, why buy organic lettuce? Well, lettuce contains 51 pesticide Get residues. Get out of here. 12 known carcinogens, 29 hormone disruptors, 9 neurotoxins, 10 developmental toxins. Wow. But the good news is that it's so easy to find. I mean, now it's usually washed three times for us and it's ready to serve, you know, when you buy it in those containers that are organic. Right. And then there's blueberries. You know, those are like one of the healthiest foods that you can eat. And if you put, if they're not organic... It's like you're ruining them. There's four, 14 of the 52 pesticide residues found in blueberries are neurotoxins, harming brain development, and contributing to failing, falling IQs. You're kidding. And think of all the things that blueberries can be in, you know, oh, like yeah. in pie and other desserts and muffins and smoothies. Oh, and, and the muffins. You think they're in the muffins? Remember that story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of the muffins that they say they are pictures blueberries. pictures of blueberries, but they didn't actually blueberries. have any blueberries. Yeah. Well, actually, maybe it's better <laughs> in that <laughs> than, case, if, than if they're not organic. That's right. And then, of course, with Thanksgiving just around the corner, cranberries. You know, if, if, if cranberries are not organic... They've got six suspected hormone disruptors like um, chemicals that are linked to cancers, obesity, and developmental disorders. So when you eat them, you need to be try to get the organic ones. <laughs> I guess that's right. So go to your farmer's market, right? Yeah, that's the, the first choice. But get if they don't have too. them there, then you can get them at other health food stores. So, do you think it's your cancer doctor's responsibility to go outside the box of traditional mainstream Western medicine to learn about alternatives and nutritional supplements in treating their cancer patients? You know, many cancer patients use vitamins and minerals and herbs, but they're afraid to tell their oncologists. Right. A lot of them get angry. Yeah. I think a lot of that's just frustration because they don't know much about supplements. I know we were given about one hour of nutrition back when I went to Duke Medical School. And I don't think it's changed a whole lot. We don't get a lot of nutrition. So when you're asked questions about what you don't know, the tendency often amongst doctors who are supposed to know everything, right? Is but this that, is their field. Yeah, I understand. And, uh, and patients don't like cancer treatments. Right. And, and they're often open to something natural without the side effects. And the medical doctors usually resist the use of the supplements in favor of chemotherapy and radiation claiming that the supplements could be dangerous. Mm-hmm. So do you think that the oncologists have an obligation to learn outside their training? Oh, absolutely. And the worst part about it is the actual training centers that don't include this. It's like, why would you just train somebody to know one special area and not know the whole story for how you treat something? That makes no sense. So I don't really blame the oncologist. They need to branch out and go with the times, you know, because well, their, patients are gonna, their patients are going to be going to natural practitioners. They're going to be looking on, on Google. They're going to be wanting to find other ways. Because Look, if your patient has cancer and you don't do everything you can to know the best treatments that there are in the mainstream and outside, you haven't done them the service that they deserve when they have a disease that could be so lethal. Well, you know, patients want and they need 
to feel hopeful and empowered. They want to enhance their body's defenses. They want to use less less toxic uh, Mm -hmm. treatments. And they want to reduce the side effects of the mainstream treatments. Absolutely. So it's like... What's it really going to hurt? A lot of times the oncologists say, oh, well, it could be dangerous because there haven't been as many studies. Well, so far, there's no cure for cancer. Pretty much that's true. Although some people are cured of cancer. Some people are. Not as many as you'd like. But, you know, people keep saying that they're marching for the cure and all that. Oh, yeah. Well, we don't want to go there. Okay. But there are supplements that could be helpful. So let's talk about some of the supplements that could be helpful. Okay. Well, we need to talk, first of all, about the why, what doctors need to do to treat their patients with what they deserve. I mean, how could any doctor in good conscience only learn one part of what's possible to treat patients with? Well, they, need to, the be rest... co- they need to be collaborative with their patients. Well, with their patients and with people who, are, who do know about the things that they don't. You know, we've started, I have started, having conferences with oncologists, radiation oncologists, and people who do complementary and alternative medicine together. together with the patient. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot different story when you have open-minded people who are listening rather than closed-minded people who, no matter what their discipline is, want to use that particular treatment because that's what they do. And that's how they make their money. And that's all they know. And when you have them all together and the patient's asking questions, then everybody's listening to what the answer is that you give. So it's not just that a supplement's the right thing to do or a chemotherapy is the right thing to do. You have to look outside of that box to a bigger picture and try to decide what's the best thing for this person. That's a whole different thing. And there are plenty of different kinds of treatments that work pretty well to support people who are getting chemotherapy, things like acupuncture. And homeopathy can be very helpful for people undergoing cancer treatment. And lots of supplements. You asked uh, what some of those supplements are. And, and there are things like curcumin and ginger and a whole range of uh, things like arnica and DMSO and vitamin D. Uh, these are, I mean, and, and, and for managing pain, there are things like infrared light therapy, which almost nobody knows about, that we're doing research on at University of California in San Francisco with a big grant from the National Institutes of Health to see if this technology works in a clinical trial to get rid of the pain and the numbness that's associated with chemotherapy-induced neuropathy. And there's electromagnetic therapies? Yes, those work as well in my experience, and we need to look to that. But it, you know the sad thing is, Vicki, I know that aside from the study that we're, the research study we're doing, I know that needs to be done to convince doctors but I've been doing this for 15 you years. Know it works. I know it works. I don't need this dumbass study, okay, to try and and prove what I already know. <laughs> this dumbass eight million dollar NIH well, study. <laughs> well, I look at it that way because I know it works, okay. And of course, the other point of view is, well, you think you know what works, but let's just test it and see for sure. Well, fine, that and I understand that point of view. But I haven't had a call from, but maybe one or two oncologists in the whole area of Northern California, asking me what we're doing to treat people who have chemotherapy-induced neuropathies because there's such a huge problem that dictate how much chemotherapy treatment a patient can take. So it sometimes is, is the limiting factor that will determine whether or not they can go on with the treatment that they want to give them. And I still don't get the calls. So anyway, supplementer, supplemental, I mean, um, 
treatments mm-hmm. or alternative treatments mm-hmm. can improve a person's quality of life. Oh, for sure. As opposed to many times when they do the mainstream medicine, their quality of life sucks. You well, know? it's gotten a lot better. I'll have to say that. Back in the 80s when we gave chemotherapy to somebody, it was a nightmare. And most of the oncologists weren't taking the treatments for themselves or their family. But as we've gotten better ways of treating people, like from the nausea and vomiting, which we can really control, that's a big thing. But we haven't solved the problem of the neuropathy or the hair loss or some of the fatigue that people get or the chemo brain stuff that people are talking about. So we're talking about big treatments. And if we could find ways of minimizing the damage that occurs to some of these areas, that's big news. And and every oncologist should go out of his or her way to find out what those potential therapies are and explore them. And it's important to the patient. Because oh, of it's, course. It's part of being sensitive and empathetic and compassionate, exchanging that information with the patient because many of the patients have done their own research. Exactly. And they feel like you don't care if you won't listen to them. Right. If you're closed-minded to what right. they're, they're asking well, about. Well, that's right. And yet at the same time, let's, let's be fair with the oncologists. They're not trained. It's still their responsibility, whether they're trained or not. It's their field. And it's not like the complementary and alternative doctors have all the answers either. They don't, although a lot of the time they act like it. And there's this stupid war that's unspoken a lot of the time. Instead of the collaborative effect. Yeah, let's work together, for God's sakes. People are dying from a very serious disease. Let's find a way to help them. Let's do what we can to combine our, our thinking. And, of course, that's what these conferences are that I'm putting together. And we'll soon have a video that we post on drsabuta.com of that event that I, that I videotaped that will be very interesting to see. All right, it's time for a network station break. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki, and we'll be right back with more Prescription for Health radio, and we'll be talking about why you and your family are likely to be malnourished right here in the USA. Welcome back to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. With so much talk about nutrition, it seems like people are health conscious and paying attention to eating healthy. But nutritional studies show that few U.S. adults get the RDAs of nutrients, and those with disabilities have even worse nutrition than the average person. What's going on? Well, we certainly don't look under or malnourished. No, we got plenty of calories. <laughs> and it appears that we're getting the calories, yes, but not the nutrition that we need to keep our bodies healthy. And there's a difference. Yeah, well, there's a lot of problems getting the nutrition from the food that's available. Because the food, if it doesn't have the nutrients in it, how in the world are you going to get the nutrients out of it? And it's probably a big reason why we have an epidemic of chronic disease. Well, that's part of it. I mean, if you you can't make the products that your body needs to make the enzymes and the hormones and the cell membranes and the brain tissue and the heart tissue and all that stuff, I mean, obviously something is going to be wrong. It's It's fuel. Well, it's like a manufacturing plant. If you're making a car and you're short steering wheel or retire, it's probably not, not going to want to drive that car. And the body's the same way. And we've got 
thousands and thousands of nutritional requirements, of which we know about 55, but the, the complex cell biochemistry of how that all interacts together is far beyond what we can comprehend. And when we do the things that we do to our bodies, because we're in a polluted world and we're in a, in a place where we're not getting fresh, whole foods that are organic on a regular basis, it, it's obvious what's going to happen. Well, too, you know, like we were saying before the break, it would really help if our doctors learn more about eating healthy and, if necessary, you know, about the supplements. They're starting to, but it's a little well, slow. Like they're, they're doing start- it on their own. I mean, they're, they're, their medical schools are not teaching nutrition because there's some block at that level of teaching nutrition. And you tell me something that's logical that says nutrition doesn't matter. It's like the very first thing. If you don't eat it you can't, and you don't have the products there, you can't make something out of nothing. And today's food is a problem. We're getting stuff that isn't really food. Well, I have a friend that had surgery recently. Oh, I know. And she's a diabetic, and they brought her white bread and <laughs> potatoes and, I don't know, it was like Jello. <laughs> everything on her plate was a starch. Yeah, right. Well, you'd think they'd know better. And then she, I don't know if she got it mixed up or not, but she said they told her she needed carbohydrates. I didn't get it. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a whole thing that has to do with <laughs> eating foods that are real foods. If something has a is a, in a package and it has an ingredients list, it's hardly ever real food. If it looks like a watermelon or a pomegranate or a squash, eat it. That's good for you, particularly if it's organic and if it's grown in soils that are rich. But if any of those things are missing, you're taking in food that's defective, that doesn't have what the human body was made to consume. And, of course, our bodies will adapt the best they can, but we lose what I call our wellness buffer. And then we're more vulnerable to become sick. And then we wonder why 50% of us have a chronic disease. It's like, duh. But one of the, some of the things that I've been noticing is that doctors are finally coming around about a few of the supplements. Yeah, well, now, supplements. they're starting to use fish oil. However, <laughs> it still hasn't replaced aspirin. No, right. They're starting to use probiotics now. Yeah, that's a real good thing. And they've recognized the vitamin D deficiency. Uh-huh. So they've been you know, giving vitamin D or prescribing that. All right. Well, when these people who did a study, okay, out of the University of Illinois, on almost 12,000 people, they found that the... People that they studied were largely malnourished for a lot of things that are important. Only 11% of of people took enough fiber in, and only 4% took in uh, the amount of potassium that was necessary. And deficiencies, as you mentioned, of vitamins A, C, and D, and calcium and iron were widespread. And there are many others, too. Well, the disabled were short on more nutrients. It's even worse there because they can't chew or they can't get it or they're not offered it. I mean, it's... It's hard for them to shop. They might be in a cane or using a cane or a walker or a a wheelchair. Their hands might be arthritic. They might not be able to pick up the cans. Okay. And some people have difficulty chewing or digesting the foods or they don't have a good appetite or they have side effects from their medication. Sure. And they're not getting fresh food from the local farmer's market either. That's not overcooked or might or nuked or something like that. But how could we confront the nutritional challenges of people that have disabilities? Well, I mean, you have to have a system that takes that into account. And if you don't, it's going to be like it is. And if cost is usually a problem, and food is a place where you can cut your costs, that's what happens. It's about people wanting to make a bottom line, which is return on investment. And it just happens that people who are sick 
are looked at as commodities and statistics rather than as people who have feelings and, and we need to care about. That's what's happened. We've lost the caring in health care. And the other thing that we don't pay attention to is that there are a lot of digestive issues. You know, people, who, as they get older, they, don't, they can't digest food as well because they don't make digestive enzymes as well. They very often don't make uh, hydrochloric acid at all. And without hydrochloric acid, you're not going to digest food right. And look at all and the people. They have that, a stomach ache, so then they take an antacid acid. and get rid of it. All or they the way. use the proton pump inhibitors, you know, to, to block that. So they're going to give you Asafex or Nexium or Prilosec or one of those drugs that, that blocks acid production. You can't digest your food, and then you can't all of a sudden absorb things like B12 or iron or magnesium or calcium. And what about the people who are gluten sensitive or people who are lactose uh, uh, can't digest that? Or who have IBS or colitis. I mean, that's that's a huge issue. Well, the other thing is, too, I think living a healthy lifestyle sh- needs to be taught in school. For sure, to everybody. Need, uh, they need to start teaching doctors. it in, in nursery, preschool, you know, and kindergarten. Right. I think it's really important. I remember when our granddaughter Shia was in the second grade, I guess, mm-hmm. and I was reading a story to the children, <laughs> The Adventures of Mickey Mouse. Oh, yeah, right. And... The teacher told me that she says, you know, now at lunchtime, the kids are all lined up to wash their hands before sure. they go to lunch. Yeah. So I think it's an age when kids are really young. That's when you need to get to them. And that's when it makes an impression and what they remember. Well, the problem is, is they're offering candy and donuts and, and things that are not healthy for them. And they develop a taste for it. And then they don't want to eat the foods that are the healthy foods. They've got these terrible diets, and they're hyperactive, and I mean, it just goes on and, and on. And some people have this thing where if it's organic, it's like, ew, yeah, then it's right. not going to taste good because they think it's something healthy, and they associate something healthy with something that doesn't taste well, good. Well, it's not a candy bar, right? So you go to your doctor, and you, you may get a sucker or go to the dentist and get some kind of sugary thing. Good for business. No, not in the dentist. They don't give you sugary things. They give you the artificial sweeteners. Oh, that well, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but they also, when I went to the dentist, they always had something with uh, that was sweet on the on the desk when you left. You hear, you hear, take a yeah, piece of gum or something. Yeah, but they're artificially sweetened. Not all of them are, Vicky. Really? No. When I was when I went to my dentist, it wasn't like that. Really? No. Yeah. I mean, it's like stir up more they business. Wanna, well, they want to give you something to make you happy when you leave. And of course, well, a lot that's of times the mentality. They give you a toothbrush, or they give you dental floss. Well, yeah, <laughs> at maybe. my dentist anyway. Well, okay, you got a good dentist, <laughs> and maybe more dentists are doing it today. But it's certainly a thing that happened, and still, I'm sure, happens. And you go to the any most doctors' offices or hospital clinics. There's candies all over the place at the nurses' stations. And what do we bring people when they're sick? Candy. Seize candy. <laughs> Try and bring them, you know, a health a healthy shake of some kind, and they won't let you give it to them. It's an interesting system that we have that we need to get past. Yeah, we had that happen with a patient one time oh, years yeah. ago. I know. We got into a big stink about it, too. So this whole business of food is huge. And the doctors just need to know more nutrition. They need to be required to take more of it in school. And if they're not going to take it in school, then they need to take the initiative to learn it on their own. You've learned it on your own. Yeah, but I I did that largely because of you in part. I remember back in the 80s and I said, don't even take a vitamin pill. You're just going to have expensive urine and don't worry about what you eat and let's have this Coke or Pepsi. And I had lots of them. But as I learned more about it, things changed. And, of course, now we're fanatics about what we eat because we realize that what you put in your body, it actually does make a difference. You are what you eat. Exactly. 
All right, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicky, and it's time for Vicky's final 2020 tip on the dangers of Splenda. <laughs> and when we come back, we'll be talking about how electronic medical records are backfiring and affecting your doctor visits, and how artificial sweeteners like Splenda cause type 2 diabetes and obesity. talked about the dangers of aspartame many times, and now we want to talk about Splenda and why it's not a healthy artificial sweetener. First of all, uh, Splenda reduces the amount of good, friendly bacteria in the intestines by 50%. It's a big deal. It increases the pH level in the intestines, which slows down digestion. It contributes to the increases in body weight. And Splenda is considered hepatotoxic and nephrotoxic, which means it causes lesions in the liver and the kidneys. And about 7% of Splenda remains in your body five days after consumption. So continued consumption accumulates and leads to kidney damage. Wow. Now, this is something Splenda was, that was stumbled upon while scientists were seeking a new pesticide formulation. <laughs> Figure so. <laughs> it was a synthetic sucralose, which which is what they like to play up in all the ads, saying it's a sugar. It's a synthetic sucralose where uh, three of the groups of the molecule have been replaced with three chlorine atoms. So in other words, you're eating chlorine. Well, some chlorine, that's right. Yeah. Well, it just shows you the difference between things that are found in nature and things that are not found in nature. And when we make things up, and they've never been in nature before, it's a grand experiment that oftentimes we don't get the answer for for 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, look at this. All of a sudden, something that makes sense that we should be able to use uh, to help people lose weight is not doing as much good as you think. Yeah, well, if it's got chlorine in it, that's probably that's one of the too. reasons why it's getting killing those friendly bacteria. Exactly. You know, if you want to lose weight, you cut back on calories, right? And mm-hmm. we know that many products contain hidden calories in added sugar. We also know that sugar contributes to diabetes and obesity, so... Doesn't it make sense to cut back on our sugar intake? Sure, it makes sense. Well, perhaps, but if you substitute your sugar intake for these non-calorie artificial sweeteners, does it follow that you'll be healthier and reduce your risk for diabetes and obesity? Or can these chemicals that lack calories contribute to diabetes and lead to weight gain? How can that happen? Yeah, well, see, that's exactly what did happen. And so it made sense, sure. Let's give our diabetics artificial sugar because we know that carbohydrates aren't good for them. And if you're overweight, give you something that doesn't have any calories in it. And it's still sweet and that should nourish you. Well, on the surface, that makes sense. But when you look at the complexity of cellular biochemistry, and then you start to make assumptions like this, you better do the scientific studies first that show that it's true before you make the assumption that this makes sense. And so basically the FDA screwed up. When they approve these things. And, of course, the story of NutraSweet is out there with Donald Rumsfeld and his buddies who, who pushed that through the FDA after several tries because they had what? Political clout. And now we're suffering from it, and this is what happened. So one of the things that happens is that these artificial sweeteners change the gut microbiome, which is what I was talking about with the, with the Splenda. Okay, so the gut microbiome are those microbes that live in the intestinal tract of which there are 10 times as many microbes as there are cells in our body. So we've got trillions of of microbes down there that live in a very complex ecosystem. 
And if that ecosystem gets disturbed so that it's not normal and natural as it should be, it doesn't function right. And what happens is that it leads to the absorption of more calories that compromise glucose tolerance, so it increases glucose absorption. Isn't that weird? So you do something that makes sense on the surface. You don't study it much. You make a fortune on it because it, because it makes some kind it of have any logic to it. it. And it doesn't work out. So, and so it increases your appetite besides. Well, that's what the old information was all about, what we banked on. And there was conflicting data on that. Some studies showed yes and some showed no. But this study looked at human beings, okay, who didn't regularly consume these non-caloric sweeteners, put them on a diet that did uh, contain these non-caloric sweeteners, and within one week, okay, uh, the bulk of these people developed glucose intolerance, meaning they had a predisposition to developing type 2 diabetes. Now, when you took the stool from these people and put that stool in mice, it produced glucose intolerance in the mice. So there's something that changed in the biome, okay, and the makeup of, that, of those microbes that live in the gut that caused this to happen. And we don't have to understand exactly what it is. It would be nice to, but we don't have to understand it to know that if you do what you just what we just described, that it changes things in the microbiome, and that produces the prerequisite for developing type 2 diabetes, which is glucose intolerance. Now, if they took the stool from people who didn't develop this, of which there were a few, and transplanted it to mice, the mice didn't get it. And if they gave antibiotics to them, it changed the whole, whole story completely, and it didn't transfer the information. So what's the bottom line here? Is it saying that when we use things like Splenda, it changes the, the makeup of the intestinal microflora so that it changes our ability of insulin to work normally in the human body that leads to a predisposition towards type 2 diabetes and obesity. And it's precisely the opposite for which we're giving these supplements, if you want to call them that, uh, in clinical practice. And you try telling this to a diabetic. Oh, right. It's really difficult to get this across to them. They can't. They just cannot believe it because they've been so brainwashed. Well, try talking to your endocrinologist or talking to your diabetes doctor who says, oh, it doesn't matter, or the American Dietetic Association that backs these things still today. Backs these things. So these people, I mean, I have friends. I go have coffee with them or something, and they insist on putting that in their coffee. They drink, you know, the, the diet, soft drinks. And a, a lot of the low-calorie foods, uh-huh. that's how they're sweetened. That's how well, they flavor them. That's right. And, you know, with just a few weeks ago, we presented a study that showed that the risk of heart attacks and strokes went up when you when you drank more in the way of artificial sweeteners. And have you ever been to a like a candy shop or something like say on a trip and mm-hmm. you you're wandering around and you go into one of these yeah. places where they sell fudge and all the different kinds of candies. They'll have a section with diabetic candies. Oh, I know. And those the worst are the thing ones you could take. that have the artificial sweeteners. I've never understood that myself because of my personal taste. I can't stand anything with an artificial sweetener and if you give me t- one with and one with that, I'll tell you right on the spot. It just tastes horrible to well, me. Well, you know, if you need, to, if you feel like you need to sweeten things and you don't want the calories, it's better to use something like stevia. Well, that would be, yes, indeed, that's true. But we need to do the studies now in the human microbiome to see what that does to it, too, because, yeah, frankly, we too. don't know. I think you got to stick with what? Plain old whole sugar. 
Well, probably your best diabetic, bet. You don't want to do sugar, so you not a lot. A teaspoon here and there isn't going to be a big deal, but to do this, uh, uh, this as we know what now, what about xylitol? Well, that that's like a burnt sugar. It, it has well, it has half the glycemic index of regular. Okay, sugar. the logic of it makes sense. Let's do the study on the microbiome and see what that shows because we don't have that data yet. Have we done it on this, the microbiome from eating sugar? Yes. And that's okay, because they actually did that in some of these studies that showed that it didn't cause any problems with glucose intolerance if you had the real thing. Mother Nature knows what she's doing. It's about that simple. So, are you frustrated that your doctor visits are shorter than what you would like? It may not be be your doctor's fault, because doctors are literally drowning in paperwork, and they're unhappy that it cuts into their time with you. Electronic medical records are not turning out to be what they were cracked up to be. Dr. Morale is at its all-time low, and your doctor prefers to examine and talk to you, believe it or not, about your health issues rather than doing extensive computer and paperwork. So we're going to be talking about electronic medical records and what they're doing to health care and how they affect the doctors. You know, everybody's complaining that their doctors aren't giving them enough time. Yeah, well, let me tell you something. If the doctor does give you enough time and you're working for one of these big conglomerates like most doctors are these days, they won't be working there very long because it's about return on investment. You spend too much time with your patients, you're just not going to get paid very much or you're going to be out of out of a job because they'll fire you. The only option you have if you want to try and do something that's going to Help, help give patients what they need is be in private practice and spend the time and not make the huge incomes that doctors are known to make. That means that if somebody comes in, you can't just spend the 45 minutes that Medicare will allot. You may have to spend an hour and a half. Of course, financially, that's not going to make very much income, but you are going to be able to do the kind of medicine that you want. So you have a choice, but you're not going to make those big incomes anymore because it's not part of the deal. Well, one of the things that happens with this is that the doctors have to give information to the government uh, regarding their services to (laughs) prove the cause for the treatment. And the government's acting like an insurance company. They're making sure that the doctor is only uh, providing FDA-approved services. Or ones that they want to approve for some reason. There's a big relationship between Medicare and the FDA that's not talked about much, but it has to be there. Well, they want to control what the doctor's doing. And so then the doctor has to spend all this extra time figuring out the codes and justifying the treatment using their rules. Yeah. And now sometimes they have to deny care to the patients. Well, yes, they do. If you have a technology that that is not Medicare approved, Medicare is not going to pay for that. So, for example, when I give my infrared light treatment to diabetics, okay, who we can most of the time in my experience – treat to relieve their pain, most of their numbness, and their balance within three or four treatments of somebody who's got mild to moderate diabetic neuropathy, it's not going to be reimbursed by Medicare. So the only way you can treat these people, because you can't charge them for half a million dollars of equipment, the rates that you would, is charge them something they can afford, but it's billed outside of Medicare. It's a terrible thing. So I charge $25 for that just to help them just to be able to provide the service so that they and and the look on their face when all of a sudden they can walk and the pain's not there and they can feel their feet and their balance is better and it happened in 10 a 10 minute treatment it's wild that's the kind of thing that real doctors 
who are committed to service and, and, and trying to help people to, to really get better because it matters to them, that's what they do. Well, that's the point. The doctors want to focus on the patients, exactly. not on the finances, Well, and which is one of the reasons why a lot of them joined the HMOs because yeah. they figured that the HMOs were going to take care of all that yeah, for them. Yeah, that's exactly right. I remember giving a talk in the early 90s at my local hospital Put it, spelling it out to the other doctors and saying, this is what's going to happen. And, of course, every single thing I said did happen. And all of a sudden, they sold their practices. The hospitals bought them or some conglomerate bought them. They got a chunk of money at the front, but they lost their practices within five years. And they now are employees doing what they are required to do by the people that employ them. And the doctors acting, the government is acting as the doctor, and the doctors have just become puppets. Well, they, they have become puppets. And now that they're tracking you more carefully, because they've got electronic medical records that they're forcing, while in theory it makes great sense, because then doctors can get records from other doctors and from hospitals instantly, and that's a beautiful thing. But now the government can track you and see what you're doing and tell you, no, you can't do that. We're not going to allow you to do that. And if you do... First, we're not going to pay you. Second, we're going to penalize you for it. Third, we'll take your license away. And fourth, we'll throw you in jail if you keep doing it. That's where this is going. So are medical records that are electronic a good idea? Not the way they're unfolding. Well, some of this was designed to protect the patient from incompetent doctors. And that's just, true. And to support the pharmaceutical industry well, to sell more too. products. That's really true, too. So Rather than some of the new things. That's right, so, they can yes. be done. So what's happened is that the doctors are being regulated by government standards, and the doctor's personal judgment is limited, and it's not respected. And not it's much. not it's not about person-centered care, which is something that you talk about all the time. Well, Everybody's an individual. You just don't throw them all in the same box and say, here's the blood pressure patients, you treat them like this, and here's... The heart failure patients, you treat them like this it's, because everybody's just a little bit different. And you may know something that somebody else doesn't. And maybe there's a lifestyle factor that could ha help somebody. And do you think it's a good idea for those records to be available to the IRS and to Homeland Security, which is how it is now? Holy smoke, what's happened to health care? What so, does that mean to have Homeland Security? Safety? Well, they can look over what you've done. What are they? Why do they need that information and what are they going to do with it? You can't trust them. We're at the end of the show. I want to remind you that we're back to talk about what's new in the news and health the first and third Mondays of every month on prn.fm and drsabuto.com from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Prescriptions for health will also be available 24-7 on prn.fm. And if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the DrSaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. <laughs> 